Happy birthday, everyone. <clears throat> it really, we, it says anniversary on there, but it really is like a birthday. We um, said since we started praying for San Francisco that we are birthing a church. It wasn't simply planting a church. And the reason why we, the nomenclature we use is birthing is um, reality in Santa Barbara, at that time, uh, they didn't have a campus in Santa Barbara, just Carpinteria, but now it's Santa Barbara. Um, and Pastor Britt, who's here as well this morning and is going to be sharing with me, um, and he's going to come up afterwards and... Um, and be teach, teaching this as well, but the nomenclature we use is birthing because the whole process of starting a church is really like birthing a church. Reality and Santa Barbara birthed this church. They financially supported this church. They, um, they prayed for this church, they even sent people to help plant this church. Um, I was like, um, I was a part of that church and I was like being birthed into this place. It, it was messy. For everything that a birth is, it was. And, um, and we... We have grown into a big baby really fast. Um, so that's what we're going to talk about today. So what, what I want to do is I want to pray um, and then um, get into what I really believe that the Lord wants to, to speak today. I, I, I felt last year and then again this year that God speaks to our church prophetically uh, at our one year. I think he does it every single Sunday, but like prophetically for the direction of the church. And last year um, we talked about like being a church that's in this city, that loves this city, that that sees the potential of the gospel spreading in San Francisco great and wants to live here and stay here and, and, um, and not become like the city, but embody the gospel in the city, if that makes sense. Well, you listen to it. it was, it's online. It's from last year. But this year, I really feel like God has a specific word for us today as well. So um, let me pray, and then we'll get into it. <clears throat> God, I thank you so much for your faithfulness to this church I thank you, God, that you have done already in just two years such a wonderful thing. Things that, um, I don't maybe my vision was too small or something. Things I think I didn't think you were going to do until year ten, and uh, you you did it um, in under two years, and it's just been great, God. And it's been a crazy last couple years. And we pray, I pray, God, that this church would grow deeper still in obedience to you, and really embodying and reflecting the gospel, the grace, the love of Jesus Christ in San Francisco and beyond, God. And so I pray you would speak to us. I pray you would give us ears to hear today, the hearts to receive. I pray, Lord, that, um, that you would please speak to me, use me, anoint me, and Pastor Britt, Lord, as we communicate what we really believe that you want to speak to this church right now. We want to receive your word and respond, God. We love you and we thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, this, what this is going to look like this morning is um, <clears throat> I'm going to share... A couple points like I normally do. Normally I do some sort of three movements or three points or I don't really even tell you the points. I just in my own head have them. So this morning I'm going to do two of them and then I'm going to ask Pastor Britt from Reality um, Santa Barbara, one of my best friends in the whole world and uh, my pastor just to come up and share this, uh, share the last point and then pray for us as a church. And so what, what I want to kind of share today, um, I, I titled this, this morning A Church with a Reputation and it'll make sense once we, once we get into this. The, the amount of prayer that has gone into this church and the labor that it took to birth this church doesn't even compare with the joy it's been to watch this church being birthed and watching it grow. This church has grown very, very fast. And this last year, our prayer was that the church would grow very deep. And all of the things, last year, if you guys were here at our last year's annual vision and prayer night, there's all these prayer requests that we said, okay, this is what we're praying for as a church, and this is what we're praying for as a church, and this is what we're praying for as a church. And God, I'm not joking, this is just mind-blowing to me as I sat back this last, on my break for, uh, over the Christmas break, sat back and just was reflecting on this. 
I can't think of a single thing that we prayed for as a church that God didn't answer. From baptisms to babies being born in our church to engagement, a lot of engagements and weddings to community in our church and community groups. Our staff has grown as we prayed and we continue to have a great relationship with the Swedish Hall and our neighborhood. We have grown to three services in about 18 months as a church. And I I think I share this story every year and I think I'll just do this for the rest of my life maybe. But the, the first time I came into this hall, um, and we looked at this place to start a church, and there were, there were this, this really neat favor between us and a neat relationship between the owner of the Swedish Hall. And, and um, I walked into this building. I stood right there. I'm like, whoa, this place is way too big. Like, there's no way in the world. And like, we were, I was like drawing. I had my little moleskin. I was drawing ways to make this place smaller. I'm like, okay, what if we hung curtains there? What if we put a fake wall there? What if we like did the stage in the corner here? What if this was like a little like seating area? Like, I was trying to figure out a way to like fit 35 people in here thinking, okay, maybe we'll grow in this church maybe like in five years. And that was my thing and something that I'm going to mention at the, our vision and prayer night is... Um, I don't know if this reflects maybe much my small vision or what this really says about me, but um, in two years, we, the, the God has accomplished what I thought he'd do in like five to ten years. And so now we're like, okay, now what do we do? You know, like, what, what's next? What, God, what do you want? Because I seriously thought it'd take five years to establish this church. I remember being on the phone with Britt and the, the staff in, in, in Santa Barbara going, okay, you, you know, you're going to have to probably support this church for five years. And it takes five years to establish this church. And this is a very difficult city. And we have this building. It's probably too big. And all these things. But God has done this thing where right now we're going, okay, what's next? We don't, um, at certain times, all three services are completely packed and full. And uh, we're, we're looking at what do we do next? This last year, our giving even exceeded what we projected in 2011. And the nonprofits and the ministries that we gave to this last year were pretty awesome as well. A full report of that will be on the 23rd. So today what we're doing is we're kind of celebrating, and we are celebrating God's faithfulness, God's kindness, his favor in this church. God has been so good to this church. And I'm rejoicing. I rejoice in prayer. I rejoice in song over this church. I'm so thankful for the things that God has done here. But at this two-year juncture, I strongly believe that God, and this is really hard for me, I've been wrestling with this all week. Um, I really believe God has a warning for our church. I think that God wants to warn us about something. And, and when, I say, when I say God wants to warn us, I don't believe that we're here yet. I believe that God is good to warn us. And after much prayer and submission of what I think that God wants to share with us today to the pastors and leaders of this church, I can tell you with confidence that God wants to warn us like this. Now, part of this warning is kind of weird because I have to have to say, talk about our church a little bit. I don't really like to do that so much. Um, I just like to let the church be what it is or whatever. I don't know. And I don't really like to talk about it that much. But, but I have to today to prove, to prove a point. So pardon me if it sounds like I'm talking about the church the whole time. But here it is. It's probably the hardest and the heaviest thing said about any church in the New Testament. And this is what I believe God wants to warn us with this morning. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write... The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, Revelation chapter 3. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. 
Amen. Okay, this is what I believe that God wants to speak to this church. Now, I don't believe, like, let me, let me just say this again. I don't believe that we're here. I believe that this is a warning for our church. I think we have to take it as a warning. Now, I hope you know that we're not all doom and gloom here. We try to show our need for God, but I'm not normally the prophet of doom, okay? I don't just get up and go, okay, everyone's gonna die. So he's got three weeks. If you don't repent now, everyone's gonna, like, I'm not normally that guy. I think you know that if you're here. However, I I believe that God wants to warn us, and this is kind of how we'll do it, these three movements like I was talking about. The first one is why Jesus rebuked the church in Sardis. Why Jesus rebuked them. How is Sardis, how is Sardis' rebuke our warning? How is their rebuke our warning? And then lastly, what does it mean to be a living church? Those are the things that I want to talk about today. Three movements, it won't take that long. First one, first. Why Jesus rebuked the church in Sardis. The city of Sardis, if you're familiar with the, the, the seven churches of Revelation, God, Jesus had a word for every church around Asia Minor. And the church in Sardis was a very sophisticated city, a very smart city. Very sophisticated, very pagan. One historian notes that it was among the most sinful cities in the Roman Empire, foulest in its worship practices. But almost every city in the Roman Empire in the world for that matter, was sinful and pagan according to the shalom that God has desired for humanity and humanity to live in. So, I mean, if I say, okay, guys, the church in Sardis was sinful, you're like, what church in the New Testament wasn't sinful? What, what city, I mean, in the New Testament wasn't sinful? What city had it all together? Jerusalem didn't even have it all together. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. What city did have it all together? And I would say there, there wasn't really any city that had it all together. But the church always flourished in cities in dense pagan cities like Philippi and Rome and Corinth and Ephesus. Pagan cities like these, the gospel exploded in. But what made the church in Sardis any different? The church did explode there. The gospel had taken root there. The church was doing very well. It was well received by the community. The church was bumping. It was booming. Things were happening. But Jesus says to this church in Sardis, you are dead. Why was the church in Sardis dead? It couldn't be the city's fault because every city was sinful. Every city was corrupt that the church planted in. Churches were always in pagan environments. But here was the condemnation for the church in Sardis. This is why the church in Sardis went really wrong. It had come, the church in Sardis had come to terms with its pagan environment. The church in Sardis says, yes, we live in a very corrupt city. Okay. And it grew comfortable in its city. There is no mention here of any persecution of the church in Sardis, like the other churches mentioned in the book of Revelation, which means Sardis tolerated Christianity. Sardis was like, okay, it's all good. Christianity is good. All these other things are good. It had tolerated Judaism, actually. the, the, The biggest synagogue in antiquity was built right next to the gymnasium in Sardis. And the gymnasium was the center of pagan culture. And, and there was a synagogue right next door, and they both cohabitated. They both lived wonderful existences together. The church and Judaism experienced favor and growth and comfort. And listen, it caused them to fall asleep. Their favor in a city, their success in a city, their non-persecution in a city Cause them to grow comfortable in that city and then just kind of settle in and went, you know what? This is our city and we'll just kind of like, 
I, we don't want to ruffle any feathers. We already have favor here. We're already doing our thing here. You know what? Let's just settle into the city. One commentator said this. The church was not troubled by persecution. It was not, uh, not disturbed by heresy. It was not distressed by Jewish opposition. It was well known as an active, vigorous Christian congregation, characterized by good works and charitable activities. But in the sight of God, all these religious activities were a failure because they were only formal and external and not infused with the life-giving Holy Spirit. Sardis was a church guided more by their city's culture than by Jesus' voice. Sardis was a church that was guided more by their city's culture than by Jesus' voice. It had become a really successful organization. It had great momentum, a perceived life and reputation, but it was dead. It was dead spiritually, dead to the voice of Jesus, dead to the real work of loving God and loving neighbor, dead to all these things. The church in Sardis had, be, had come to terms with its pagan environment and its practices, and though it retained the outward appearance of life, it was spiritually dead. So the darkest rebuke in the New Testament in any New Testament church, comes from Jesus, who has the seven spirits of God and the, and the seven stars, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose words are the sharp two-edged sword. If you read the first three chapters of the book of Revelation, you get a whole different side of Jesus. Have you read the book of Revelation? You're like, whoa, wait, wait, this is not the Jesus of Mark. I thought Jesus was like, like this like, guy that wants to wrap everybody in his robe and loving. He's like, no, I have a flame of fire coming out of my, of my eyes and I have a sword coming out of my mouth and I hold the seven stars and I hold the seven, the, the seven lampstands. I hold it all. It's all mine. And I have this to say against this church. This, I have this to encourage it. Like, this is a whole different side of Jesus. This side of Jesus is a Jesus who's passionately, that passionately desires his church to reflect his heart and his mission in the world. It's like, no church, do you remember what I left you with? You have to reflect me. You have to center around me. It has to be about me. And so Jesus has this word against Sardis. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive. But you are dead. Now, how is Sardis' rebuke, which is heavy, when I read it, and I, I, I really sensed God saying, I want you to say this to the church this week. I'm like, close my Bible. I'm like, no. That is not what we say to churches, Jesus. Like, I don't, know, I don't know what you're like, I don't know how it was back then, but that's not what we do now. <laughs> no, how is, how is Sardis' rebuke, reality San Francisco's warning? How is it our warning? Our church has a reputation. I don't like to admit it. I don't like to talk about it. When people try to talk about it, I just like, don't talk to me about it. That's dumb. That's silly. That's, I, I, I want to move on. And this is a part of the sermon I don't really want to talk about, but I think I, I need to, to prove this point. No one likes to hear when someone talks about themselves, but this needs to be said about our church. Because by the grace of God, this little church plant has grown very fast in the last two years. Faster than I think anyone thought. Faster than people that I met in the city thought. Faster than I think anyone who comes here, has come here the last two years has thought. So fast that 
we're trying to figure out, okay, what do we do next? We have this reputation of a very young and growing and vibrant church. I hear some really good things said about this church. I hear some really silly things said about this church. And I hear some really bad things said about this church. Some of them are true. Some of them are not. We're known as a church that's not entirely mystic, so you don't know what we believe. But not so hard line that we leave no room to wait upon God and hear his voice. And this has all been entirely the work of Christ. Now these things are said about churches in the nation, but they're rarely, I mean they are, but they're rarely said about a church plant in San Francisco. Some might say it's because the church was founded on prayer. So I'm like, well, reality's doing it. They founded their church on prayer. Well, a lot of churches found their church on prayer. Well, because they're preaching the gospel. Well, there's a lot of churches that are preaching the gospel. I can't really explain it at all. I know that this is God doing this. This is completely God. And I think that because of the impact that we made as a church at the very beginning, this impact of showing up and all of a sudden just really just expanding really, really big, really fast. In San Francisco standards, I'm not talking about like, you know, Colorado Springs or something like that or Orange County. I'm not talking about those standards. I'm talking about like San Francisco standards, Bay Area standards. If you live here for any length of time, you're like, yes. If you are like from OC, you're like, wait, my church in Orange County was like 38,000 people. And it was two months old. What are you talking about? Like, that, those, aren't, those aren't these standards, okay? These are different things here. For, for a church like this, it's, it's been, because it started and kind of expanded really fast, we have this name. And this is what I think the warning, here, and here's the warning. You're like, hey, get to the point. What's the warning? I think here's the warning. Because of the church's reputation for the first two years as a church, of being a young, vibrant church, we could die as a church and no one knew that we were dead until like five, 10 years from now. We can die right now as a church and live off our momentum for five years. Live off of what we were, live off of how we started, live off of just, or just go through the prayer meeting motion, go through the Sunday morning, okay, what happens is, okay, this is where Dave says everyone repent and turn to Jesus and then the lights go off and then everybody comes forward, takes communion and then you do like two seconds on the carpet and you walk out and that's how you do it, baby. And that's how we roll here, and that's awesome, and you feel so good. But then, you, but corporately, we're do, corporately, it looks like on Sunday morning that everybody's seeking Jesus, but individually, we're all dead. Individually, this has just become another thing. Individually, we all have the same addictions. We all have community that's centered around anything but Christ. We all, when someone comes in the church, like, there's life here, and they go to a community group, and they get to know, like, two people. They're like, wait, you don't reflect what I experienced on Sunday. You reflect, like, this self-centered, you know, person that's addicted to all these things. Like, yeah, I know, but, you know, like, we all go to church and we, like, feel good about Jesus and blah, blah, blah. We have this corporate identity, but it doesn't make up our individual identity. We don't have an identity as, a, as, a, as individuals of a Christ-centered person. And that's the warning. That's the warning to our pastors Myself, the heaviest part was, it was first a warning to me. That's been the heaviest thing to deal with the last, this last week or so. It's a warning to our leaders. It's a warning to our church. I know that we can do this. I know that we can die and probably live off of momentum and still grow. And it scares me to death. We can have a name, a reputation as a church. of being reality of the church that's like this vibrant, young, whatever thing. And be dead. And it scares me. So that's the warning. 
So I hope this adds a little balance and perspective to something that we've been saying for two years. We love this city. When we moved here, we began a church here. We committed our lives here. We wanted to throw roots down, raise families in the city. We love the, the, the we're pretty open how we enjoy this city, the culture, the people, the diversity. But to add a little balance here, we can't get so comfortable here that we don't, want to, we don't want to embody the God. We want to embody the gospel in the city. We don't necessarily want to embody the city, if that makes sense. We want to embody the gospel in the city because we love this place. And we think what this place needs, what San Francisco needs, is the embodiment of the true gospel, of the real gospel of Jesus. And we can't grow lazy going, okay, we made ourselves in. Okay, we're all good. Okay, is anyone going to shoot us? No. Is anyone going to pick it? No, not yet. Okay, okay, we can relax now. Everybody, okay, we're good. No, we, we have to stay in this posture of like, we want the kingdom of God to keep advancing and moving forward in the city. And so what does it look like to be a church that's alive, a living church? And for that, I want Pastor Britt to come and share and close us in prayer. Well, it's, uh, it's a pleasure to be with you guys. I, I know you don't all know me, but I, I love all of you and pray for you and feel incredibly connected to you and uh, the church in Santa Barbara, Reality Santa Barbara and its campuses in Carpinteria and Ventura send their love and they're rejoicing with you on your second birthday. It's an interesting birthday celebration because your pastor, Dave, has delivered something kind of heavy. And um, Pastor Dave took this very seriously. He, he was struggling with this all week. We were, we've been kind of dialoguing a little bit about this Sunday, uh, knowing that we would share the pulpit duties. And he, he called me to, he actually texted, he didn't call, he texted to say, what do you do when God wants you to say something gnarly? And he didn't actually say gnarly, that's my surfer lingo translation. <laughs> he used some intelligent word, but what do you do when God wants you to say something gnarly and you, and you don't want to say it? You see, he's really been wrestling with this warning. And so I think that, that it, would, it would behoove the church, the individuals of the church, to also wrestle with it. How might we begin to process what was just said, what, what Jesus said to Sardis, now sort of levy to us? How, how, do, how would you begin to process that? And I, I would say this first. Don't, don't confuse in your mind a warning and a rebuke, Okay? What, what, what Christ has done with the church tonight is give a warning, not a rebuke. Sardis got a rebuke, but what he's done to reality San Francisco tonight is give a warning, and, and there's a, a tremendous difference. You see, what a warning is, is a tangible expression of loving concern. It's a tangible expression of loving concern. Let, let me try to illustrate. Uh, my family and I recently moved houses. We bought a little ranch in the hills of uh, Santa Barbara and got a couple acres there, and so uh, we're into outdoor living. The house is really small, but there's lots of outdoor space. And so we've been having these bonfires at night because there's stars up there and it's beautiful. There's no city lights. We're kind of country folk down there and country surfing folk. And uh, we've been having these bonfires at night. And we, we had this family over the other night, an elder from our church and, and his kids and stuff. And we had this giant bonfire going on. And my, my daughter, Daisy Love, who's seven years old, old. She has a friend in this family, Selah, and they got all dressed up together and put little girly outfits on. I don't even know what the motif was. They had like ballerina skirts and cowboy hats and like a tail and like gloves. I don't know what it was, but it looked really, really cute. And then they were kind of entertaining the adults and they were singing little Taylor Swift songs and 
kind of dancing around the fire, and, and, and as daddy here is, is watching these beautiful little girls dance around the fire, I'm noticing how their little tails and their skirts are getting close to the flames because it's a giant bonfire, and I, in loving concern, grab both their arms and stop them in their tracks. I said, sweeties, don't get that close to the fire. Move away from the fire. He said, that, that, that was a warning. That, that wasn't a rebuke, that was a warning. And the reason I did that is because I am radically in love with those little girls. I care deeply for those little girls. Jesus Christ cares deeply for reality San Francisco. That, that, that is the only reason he, he's grabbed us tonight and said, look, here, here, here's a little warning. That you don't want to just sail on the good reputation of the church, which is by grace and for the glory of God, but as as the church, as the people redeemed of God by the blood of Christ who make up the church, we need to make sure that we're experiencing, manifesting, enjoying the life of Christ in us that we might truly be alive. So in processing this, we say, okay, it's a, it's a warning, it's a, it's a tangible expression of loving concern from Christ who loves us and gave himself for us. How else might we process it? It's interesting to me as I was praying for this evening, um, I realized that at two years into his ministry, right, we're, we're two years into reality San Francisco, at two years into his ministry, Christ took his boys up to a place in northern Israel called Caesarea Philippi. And Caesarea Philippi during the time of Christ was a cultural hotbed and a spiritual hotbed. A cultural hotbed in that it was a place outside of Jerusalem, right, removed from Jerusalem, uh, up north in Israel, where if anything cool was happening, it was coming out of Caesarea Philippi, right? So like if Apple was happening in the time of Jesus, it would have came out of Caesarea Philippi. Jerusalem might have been LA, but SF was like Caesarea Philippi. The real cool stuff was coming out of there. So, and, and, and it was also the spiritual hotbed where people were, were, were more open in that area of Israel than anywhere else to different expressions of spirituality. So the Greco-Roman pantheon was well, welcome and, and new sort of gods were welcome and different forms of worship. And so Jesus, at, at exactly two years into his ministry, takes his boys up there and he stands at the place of worship there, where I've been there several times. Some of you will, will go there in your lifetime. It's this bedrock sort of giant rock foundation and then it's got this big cliff behind it with all these niches carved in it where the idols of the peoples and the Greco-Roman pantheon were all in there and new interesting gods were placed in there and people would express all sorts of forms of worship there. Jesus walks there with his disciples. He stands in the midst of that and he says, Look at, who do the people say I am? And what's interesting is the, the, the answer of the people hasn't changed in 2,000 years. There's lots of different answers, and the disciples express that. Well, some people are saying you're this, some people are saying that, some people are saying this. It was just like San Francisco right now, lots of ideas about who Jesus was. And Jesus says, okay, I, I hear what the people are saying, but I want to know what my people are saying. So he says to him, who, who, who do you guys say that I am? And Peter, the self-elected spokesman of the group, speaks up and he says, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus says one of the most profound things ever uttered, I think. He says, yes, and I will build my church. You're the Messiah. You're the Son of the living God. You're the King and the Savior and the Redeemer. And he says, yes, and I will build 
my church. And there's much to be said about that. The gates of hell will not prevail against it, so on and so forth. Christ building his church. This, this right here, what's happening tonight, this is proof that Christ isn't a liar. When he said 2,000 years ago, I will build my church, he's doing it here in the city of San Francisco. But one salient point I want to pull out of that will help, that will help us process this warning from the Lord tonight is he claimed it to be his church. He used a possessive possessive pronoun of, of my. I will build my church. Now, what is the church? The church is that which is formed in the wake of the coming of the kingdom. Right? When Jesus came, the kingdom came with him. Jesus came and he announced the kingdom. He said, the kingdom is here, Re- repent. And what happens then is the church is birthed in the wake of the coming of the kingdom when men and women repent. When men and women repent and put their faith in Jesus Christ, they're born again, they're made brand new. And the church then is, is birthed in, in the wake of that because there are these new men and women, these new creations that exist. And they are the church. And what Christ does is so beautiful with that. He says, they're mine. This church I'm going to build by saving men and women because of the coming of the kingdom and through faith and repentance, those men and women and children are mine. Claims them as their own. We might say they are my blood-bought bride, Jesus would say. And it's profound the ownership that he lays claim on, uh, by which he lays claim on us. Because you guys were just studying Genesis, how God created all things. But Colossians has expressed that God created all things through Christ. He is the one through whom all things were created, Colossians 1, and for whom all things exist. So Christ created you, and then sin enters in, and everything gets messy, and then he comes, drapes himself in humanity, is nailed to the cross, rises from the dead, and thereby redeems you. You are twice his. He made you, and he redeemed you. And, as Colossians says, you exist for him. So it's proper then for those who are formed in the wake of the kingdom, the church, to say, I am no longer my own. The life I live, I live by faith unto Christ. I belong to him. I am the blood-bought bride of Jesus. And he calls me his own. So we've been given this warning. It's a warning, not a rebuke. Jesus is incredibly possessive of you. So that what we ought to do then as as redeemed men and women is be really purposeful to make it all about Jesus. Seems intuitive, but aren't things always competing for center stage? And, And even at church, we have a tendency to make church about the preaching or about the music or about my needs or, or the people that I meet there, or my contribution, or my gifts. We, we make church about all these other things. And what we ought to realize is that we who are claimed to be owned by Christ, when we gather and when we scatter, ought to say we are doing it to, for, around, and with Jesus. When we get together in our community groups, it's to, for, around, and with Jesus. When we get together in our premarital class, to, for, with, and around Jesus. When we get together at our eat-ups, to, for, around, and with Jesus. We're interacting and enjoying one another as a redeemed, but center stage is Christ. Because the goal of the cross is not that we just might feel better about our sin or finally have a place to go when we die or just get together and enjoy fellowship. The goal of the cross is that we might have an intimate, meaning, love affair with Jesus. 
That's, that's the goal of the cross. So that we need to become purposeful when we do that as individuals. I'm struck with the profundity of the tagline of Reality San Francisco. It's beautiful. A community following Jesus. We're following him because we are his. And because we exist for his glory. And I I think that what will help us do that and, and stay alive in reality and individually and not just in appearance and corporately, what will help us stay alive is if we all come to the conclusion that Jesus is actually worth following. If we're endeavoring in our lives to say, Christ is the greatest treasure. If we're endeavoring to say along with the psalmist, Lord, besides thee, there's nothing I desire on earth. If we're willing to hear the good news, the message that has been preached week in and week out here, that Jesus is ultimate and more desirable than anything else in the world. You see, there's all sorts of stuff competing for our affections and our attention and our passion. And what Scripture is declaring is that Jesus is more wonderful than all of them, and the cross has brought us near. And so if we're going to stay alive, we need to make this individual decision where we say, I believe that Jesus is worth following because he's better than anything else the world has to offer. Yeah, go ahead if you're going to do it. Praise the Lord. And then I think if if, if we're going to say, okay, Jesus is, is worth following, then I think that what we want to say as those who are his is Jesus is worth hearing. Jesus is worth hearing. So if we're a community following Jesus, we're a community who's trying to hear what he has to say to us, corporately and individually. And you know, that's kind of like a, that can be a mystical sort of ethereal thing. How do I hear God? And some people you know, they're like, God told me today. And you're like, what? He never told me anything. What's he sound like? You know, but listen, here's where it gets real basic. Read the Bible. Hear what Pastor Tarek said during announcements. Read the Bible. It is God's word to the world. You want to hear what Christ has to say? Read the Bible. You want to take it to a different place? Practice prayer. Practice the life of prayer. Listen to the prophetic voice of the Holy Spirit. Tune out for just a minute the clamor of culture and listen for the voice of the Holy Spirit. Get yourself quiet. It's hard in culture today to get quiet, huh? iPods and iPads. and you know. Get quiet and listen for what Christ would have to say, for he loves you. He's jealous for you. You're his. He's saying to you, come away, my beloved. He wants to speak words of loving kindness to you. So if we're following Jesus, we are those who have decided already that Christ is worth following, Christ is worth hearing. And let me add this. Christ is worth seeing. You say, well, how do we see him? Brit's a tripper. He says he sees Jesus. I didn't say that. The righteous shall walk by faith and not by sight. But there is a way in this lifetime. One day we'll see him. Amen. I need some amens on that. One day we'll see him. But there is a way in this lifetime in which we can see Jesus. Here's what I think. I think we need to begin to write Jesus into the equations of our lives. Because what we often do is write him out of the equations of our lives. We think about things so pragmatically. We think, well, I got this education, so I got this job, so I have this income, so I have these things. 
right? That's just very pragmatic. That's a, a sensible equation. And, and that is true. And that's how much of the world views things. But you see, we are not atheists who believe there's no God in our equation. Nor are we deists who believe that there's a God somewhere. He made me and he gave me this awesome brain and this ability to make money, but he's not really involved. Deism believes that there's a supreme being, but he's uninvolved in creation. We are theists. Christianity is theism. It believes in a supreme God who is infinitely and intimately concerned with his creation, who intervenes in and sustains relationship with those that he made. So that we don't have equations that say, I got this education, I got this job, I made this money, this is mine. That's what Nebuchadnezzar would say. Nebuchadnezzar would stand on the walls of Babylon and say, look at all I have done. We don't speak like Nebuchadnezzar. We speak like Paul who said, I am what I am by the grace of God. And my life is no longer my own. I don't even live, it's Christ who lives in me. So if I got an education, the grace of God. If I got that job, it's for the glory of God. If I have this level of income, it's a gift of God. And if I have these things, they're for the purposes of God. To stay alive, we need to start to write Jesus into our equations. And the last thing I would say, we've decided as a community who follows Jesus that he's, he's worth following, he's worth listening to, he's worth trying to see in the story of our lives. And the last thing I would say is he's worth obeying. A community following Jesus is only following Jesus to the, degree that, to the degree that they're obeying. Right? We, we really believe what Jesus has to say is truth. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And so we're endeavoring by his grace and the empowering of his Holy Spirit to obey him. Because it's one thing to do church, to come in here and, and do this wonderful thing that we do corporately and go out and live incongruent lives. But that's not following Jesus. That's not what we're called to. That's not what the blood-bought bride does. The blood-bought bride comes and celebrates together and then scatters from one another and says, I want to now obey and represent and reflect Jesus in his beauty and his glory and his kindness to a broken culture. That's, that's the warning. That's the opportunity. That's what the Lord is saying. And if there's any incongruencies there, if you haven't seen Jesus as being worth falling, if you've got too many competing things that you're, you're giving attention to, if, you, if you're not trying to hear, if, you, if you're not seeing him in the equation of your life, if you're not obeying when you know what he's calling you to do, then the best thing you could do tonight is repent. And don't let mean old preachers from the past make that a nasty word. That's not a nasty word. Listen, Peter, who had to repent a lot, stood up before Israel in Acts 3.19 and said, you guys should repent. Because times of refreshing come from being in the presence of the Lord when you repent. So for the weak and weary soul that hears a warning tonight and says, what do I do? Step one is repent. Say, Lord, I, I want you to be supreme. I want to hear, see, and follow you for your glory and your joy. Amen? Let me pray for this church. Lord, I thank you for this wonderful church that has been birthed by your grace and for your glory. I pray for them and over them that they would experience more of your love this year than ever before. Jesus, that you'd be more real. I pray that, Holy Spirit, you would tune their ears to hear your voice. I pray that, Holy Spirit, you would exalt Christ in their hearts to the place of supremacy. 
I pray the Holy Spirit, you would open their eyes to see Christ in the story of their lives. And we ask the Holy Spirit, you would empower us to obey. And that in that, we'd find tremendous joy and fruitful lives that are selflessly lived for your glory. Lord, I ask that this year would be the sweetest year of enjoying Jesus that Reality San Francisco has ever known. Lord, do it by your grace and do it for your glory. In your name I pray, amen.